0: The kingdom of WLRH Huntsville Public Radio lies in peril. Lurching forth from the darkness, the annual membership goal takes form once again as the Dragon of Apathy. Defiantly barring safe passage as a seemingly impenetrable obstacle to programs and enlightenment. But fear not, brave travelers. You have a part to play in this epic tale to slay the Dragon of Apathy by supporting our battle-hardened adventurers who strive valiantly to keep our kingdom inspired and entertained with programs of renown and profundity. You can become a shining beacon of strength to our weary heroes. Just spare a few coins of any amount or infuse our adventurers with the sustaining lifeblood of treasure through monthly contributions. Be part of the quest. Follow online and on social media and give today at WLRH.org support.
1: Good evening, you lovely people. You are listening to the Valentine's edition of the Public Radio Hour here on 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio. I'm your host, Katie Gannaway. Valentine's Day is one sleep away, so we've gathered some heartfelt pieces created and lived by our amazing Sundial Writer's Corner. They share fond memories of love gone right and wrong, a nearly-missed love connection saved by the fates, pondering what it means to love, and much more. First up, it's Aparna Buchanan and her poem, Sentiments of the Middle Kingdom.
2: I stood idly by as the jasmines creamed. Blossoms swirled round his head as I dumbly dreamed that, perhaps by some providence of morrow, I could be relieved of this earthly sorrow. This love out of season, a tempestuous heart, the knowledge that we would live moons apart. All conspired against us, but we let loving be, Since loving was he, and he did love me. The violence of fondness was in my heart rested. Conversely, in his was a patient strength vested. He assured me again that our fates were rounding. He heard our destiny from afar sounding. An insight broke above a milky dawn sky, Telling jaded stars the words to our plight. Released hope in ribbons folding down from the heavens, And filled him and me, but the hopeful ear deafens. When distance pummeled our tender connection, We sustained our unselfish and rigid affection, But despite our thrashing the distancing bars, We found ourselves at the mercy of stars. I found myself in this queer place again, With the doomed petals and the bursting jasmine, When I peered in his eyes, my vision met divinity, and I swore to myself, I had never known infinity.
1: A sophomore at Bob Jones High School, Aparna wrote this poem after having spent six weeks learning Mandarin in Xi'an, China. The poem is about her love of the people and the culture she experienced. Aparna's mother is an English teacher, and her father, Shri is no slouch either. He gives voice to their family dog, Izzy, for this story of love at first sight.
3: My name is Izzy, and I am a good girl. At least, that's what Dad says. I turned three this month, but I've not been with Dad for that long. That's what makes this a special love story. I was actually part of the Lee family who were neighbors. One morning in March of 2017, future dad saw me bounding across the Lee's yard with my short puppy strides. He came up to introduce himself and asked who this little polar bear was. I should have told him I'm a Bichon Frise and we are spotlessly white. He left and returned soon after with his entire family. They pet me for a long time as I licked their hands and face. Over the next couple of years, future mom and dad would keep me on some weekends. As a toddler, I was prone to accidents. Future mom would get upset, but future dad would quietly clean up after me and ask me to give a heads up next time. I was beginning to like this guy. Last May, Mrs. Lee took me to the Bushannans and talked about rehoming me, whatever that means, as her sweet infant granddaughter would develop a rash whenever I licked her. They must not have mulled over it very long because the very next day, Mrs. Lee brought me over with my crate, my favorite blanket, and my food. She seemed sad, and I wondered why. It was just another short stay, and the Bushannans were A-OK. This time was a little different. Days went on, and I never saw Mrs. Lee again. I started settling in with the Bushannans, and I think they like me. Here are some of my favorite routines with them. I've got this thing for car rides. Once the passenger door is opened, I leap and sit in the driver's seat. I wait patiently till dad opens the door, and only then do I make way for him. You could say I'm a seat warmer. Once he's buckled in, I climb onto his lap and start clawing on the window as he's backing out. When dad lets the window down, I stick my face out the window, my shoulders hunched and nose pointed downward, as I breathe in all the scents that God's green earth proffers. In the winter time, for some reason, Dad does not roll down the window. Hey, I'm the polar bear, remember? I love winters. He's still a pretty swell guy. Another favorite thing Dad does is exercise. After he's done, I love to lick the sweat around his ankles. He stands still while I work my way around both legs. I wish he had four legs. That melange of salt, spice, and all things nice. Mm, 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 Then he takes a shower. Wait, I wasn't done. I guess I'll wait for next time. I wish he'd exercise more often. But he's all right, even with his dad bod. My favorite time is daybreak. When Dad wakes up, I lead the way into the kitchen. I yelp in excitement and flop on my back, paws folded forward, hind legs stretched way back, my pink belly exposed. Hey, Dad, this belly ain't gonna rub itself. Ah, I say, as he rubs my belly and I relax, my mouth agape and tongue flop to one side. When he stops, I tighten my paws in a begging pose and stretch my legs out in a perfect pirouette as if to say, more, more. They say dads want their toddler girls to grow up quickly. Then when they hit their teens, wish they were little girls again. But that's just not the nature of things. I, however, will be the same forever. I will run up to him when he returns from work, ask for a satiating belly rub as he breaks into song and says, Is you is or is you ain't my Izzy? Well, I is. That's my love story, and I'm sticking to it. I know.
1: Shree and the Buchanan family are first-time dog owners, and they're loving every minute of it. Shree now prefers the alias, the dog father. What do you do when you go with your friends to a super rad, totally tubular college party, but your crush leaves you in the cold with gas station pizza? Melissa Ford Thornton tells us about her sort of excellent adventure in The Lovesick Burglar.
4: I didn't plan to go from straight-A girl-next-door nerd to coming within a chin-whisker of being booked on breaking and entering charges dressed in nothing but a pair of purple footy pajamas— But life doesn't always go as planned. My desire to fit in with the cool kids resulted in unfortunate fashion decisions, and love led to some poor life choices. My flirtation with a life of crime came in college. I made a conscious decision to shed my nerd skin by imitating the shiny, ponytail, thoroughbred girls who seemed to breeze through life and attract boys without batting an eyelash. Seemed easy enough. Step one, purchase penny loafers and wear really big hair bows. Yeah, I went to college in the South. Step two, go through sorority rush. My methodology paid off. One of the first requirements of a new pledge was to attend a fraternity mixer. Somehow I'd lucked into a date with a cute engineering major, my type, studious. He also happened to be a frat boy. And when he invited me to his fall mixer, my sorority sisters were over the moon, Honestly, my desire to fit in was secondary at this point. I really liked the guy, and I was nervous he'd notice I'm more geek than Greek. When I learned the mixer had a pajama party theme, all my girl-next-door jeans kicked into overdrive. No way was I following my ponytailed sorority sisters into a frat party wearing a skimpy baby doll. Uh Uh-uh. That's how reputations go up in flames, and academic careers go down the drain. But I really wanted to see that cute guy again. So I found a pair of purple footy pajamas on sale. Imagine. Modest, creative, and warm. Practicality beats style in my book. The night of the mixer, I was ready. Uh, in retrospect, I likely resembled a five foot Easter bunny or just a short girl in a tacky terry cloth purple onesie, desperate to disguise how uncool she really was. Oh, the irony. My date called on the landline. No cell phones in ancient Greece. He had to work late. My heart sank. But he assured me we'd meet at the party, and he'd dance with me, we'd grab a bite to eat, and he'd get me back to my apartment before curfew. So I caught a ride with a sorority sister, whose date looked askance at my ensemble. What? I matched perfectly, neck to toe. My bravado faded at the clubhouse door. I felt out of place, walking dateless into a room filled with flimsy negligees and silk smoking jackets. My discomfiture grew as couples paired off and began to slow dance. The sorority sister I rode with got into a fight with her boyfriend and they drove off burning rubber. The hours moved agonizingly on. I stood in the corner sipping flat Pepsi from a solo cup, reliving the hurt and humiliation of every high school dance I'd never been asked to. The clock crept closer to curfew. At 10 p.m., I admitted defeat and slunk out, trying to figure my next move. My apartment was miles off campus. A Circle K and the No Shows apartment, however, were both across the street. In my ever-optimistic naivety, I thought, maybe, just maybe, my date had fallen asleep. I mean, he'd worked overtime. He had to be hungry. I was. I walked to the convenience store, purchased a pizza. The clerk stared at my PJs. I tucked that pizza under my arm and trudged gamely on. But when I reached the cute guy's apartment, it was dark. My knock went unanswered. I was shivering. It was November. I looked longingly through the apartment living room window, imagining how warm it must be inside. More importantly, I knew there was a phone in there, and I could call my roommate and end this humiliating night. I tried the window, and it gave. In defense of my next action, I was cold, hangry, a little lovesick. It made perfect sense at the time to raise that window and step over the ledge. Hands up! The security officer's high-powered flashlight caught me with one purple footie precariously poised over the sill. I dropped the pizza and closed my eyes to a vision of my mugshot. Purple is the new black. Then I heard another voice. Sorry I'm late. Hey, when I got to the dance and you weren't there, I figured you'd stood me up. The next words out of my date's mouth were the sweetest and unlikeliest I've ever heard. It's okay, officer. She's with me. She's cool. I learned important lessons that night. Circle K pizza is inedible. Cool is totally overrated. Crime never pays, except in matters of the heart.
1: Melissa Ford Thornton is a California girl with a southern accent. Imagine that. And also a storyteller, poet, music publicist, and lyricist. She's currently at work on a true storytelling podcast titled Tree of Trust, which focuses on the place love starts with us all, mental wellness. Well, love bugs, we hope you're feeling the love tonight on this, our special Stories of Love episode of the Public Radio Hour. Next up is longtime Sendile contributor Joyce Billingsley, reflecting on her treasured relationship with her late husband Bill and how he stays with her to this day.
5: Two GIs walk into a bar. Scanning the room, one of them fastens his eyes on a girl and says, I'm going to marry that girl someday. 56 years later, here I am. Bill was an ardent, unwavering suitor and he won me over with his charms. He was an enigmatic presence. He told the most amazing stories about his life, and was generous to a fault. He didn't exactly sweep me off my feet, but he certainly launched me into a completely different life than I could ever have imagined. On our 52nd anniversary, he spoke his last words to me. He was in the hospital for Tess, As we left him that evening, he said, "'You can tell the nurses to bring in the champagne now.'" His nod to our celebration that we both knew wasn't going to happen, though his doctor had notified them that Mr. Billingsley could have a whiskey nightcap if he chose. He'd been stoically enduring almost continuous treatments for lung cancer for over two years, uncompromising, The diagnosis had only upped his game. At 76, he was still working, and he had places to go and friends to see. He wasn't going to quit smoking. His one concession was to water down his whiskey, and his library became party central for the friends he collected. Our youngest daughter had come, and we'd barely got to bed when the hospital called. He was gone by the time we arrived. As we drove back home, I put my hands up to my face and breathed in hard. I could smell Bill. We sat up in his library talking through the night, and his scent surrounded me. Nearly two years later, I still detect his aura in a variety of odours. It seems grief gave me a gift of a heightened awareness of scents. At first, I thought it only happened in the dark. Silent night when other senses are muted. But now I realize that it comes out anywhere and at any time. In the car, at the symphony, on a plane, or a London bus, or the Yorkshire Moors. And recently, in a New York City subway, he drops in. He checks in with me almost every day in some way or another. It isn't always the same scent, but they're all Bill. It isn't spooky at all. It's comforting. Almost every decision, everything I've done since his death, has had his blessing. We didn't agree on much. In fact, as we aged, I felt our ancient roots were tugging us in different directions. He wanted more while I wanted less. But at this point in my life and his death, he'd want only the best for me. He wouldn't expect me to adhere to his wishes. He knew when he met me that I was strong-willed and could stand alone, so he could leave me and feel confident I'd be all right. If you see me breathing deeply with a faraway look on my face, you can be sure Bill's with me. And I just bet he'll be present when I draw my very last breath.
1: Joyce Billingsley started writing family tales after her parents passed away, so their stories would last forever. She then continued writing as she had memories of her own to share. You may have laughed along with Rose Battle out on the storytelling circuit. In our next piece, Rose turns the clock back to tell us a double love story from Bridgeport, Alabama, in A Double Bunch of Love.
6: Bill Battle had just graduated from Birmingham Southern College in 1936 when he received a job offer to start a PE program in Bridgeport, Alabama at the high school. He successfully did that while living at Miss Maddie's boarding home. The next year, he returned to Birmingham Southern College to become a coach and then athletic director for the rest of his life. Two of his nine siblings, my daddy Dave and Uncle Gene, were at MTSU playing football. Uncle Gene was getting ready to graduate, so Uncle Bill wrote Uncle Gene to see if he wanted to coach at Bridgeport. He did. He moved there and took Uncle Bill's room at the boarding house. Unknown to the Battle Brothers, Granny Troxel lived around the corner. Three of her eight children, all girls, were still at home. Aunt Emily, Aunt Lucy, and Mother. Aunt Lucy wanted to meet Uncle Gene right away, so she did. She accidentally threw her shoe out of a second-story bedroom and hit Uncle Gene in the back. He brought the shoe inside. Granny began making him homemade meals and calling him son, and by the next June, the young couple were married. They went off to Florida Southern where Uncle Gene became the dean of students. He had already asked Daddy to come coach in his place at Bridgeport, and Daddy agreed. The Chattanooga Times had a sports page headline that read, Battle to Battle to Battle at Bridgeport High. Before that, Uncle Gene took Daddy to meet Aunt Lucy. Granny said for Daddy to go meet her youngest child, Josephine Rose, in the living room, while Granny cooked a nice big supper for everyone. Daddy looked at mother and said, Little girl, I'm not here to marry you or anyone else. Our mother, who was a scholar and a beauty queen, said, Well, I'm certainly never marrying you. Six months later, they were married. Five years later, they had four children. Somewhere in there were born five double first cousins. We could have had 32 aunts and uncles if Daddy and Uncle Jane had not married sisters. But a double bunch of love gave us only 30 aunts and uncles, and theirs turned out to be two sets of love stories, which each lasted almost 70 years. What a bunch of love. Rose
1: Battle has always had a love of writing children's books, songs, and poems. You can also see her perform live at local storytelling events and she also does a bit of sideline reporting during high school football season. Bold moves are sometimes necessary when it comes to matters of the heart. Andrew Gonzalez favors gestures of grandeur and remembers one awkward pursuit of a girl he never met in A Twist of Fortune.
7: Being a career bachelor and hopeless romantic, there isn't a day that goes by without the thought of dating on my mind. Grand romantic gestures win the hearts of countless fantasies, tiny sentimental expressions stave off the specter of monotony, and I take best lead male role in a romantic comedy at the Academy Awards. Then reality sets in. My friends send me RSVPs with one already checked in, Facebook supplies me with an endless stream of people I may know for my next online crush. And the IRS takes the initiative to file single for me on my taxes. Bleak as my outlook is, hope remains. Every so often, the planets align, the moon shines blue, and a beautiful, kind-looking lady walks into a Chinese-inspired fast-food restaurant. I was swooning over her. A waterfall of shimmering brown hair fell past her shoulders and onto a classy outfit. Her demeanor with a friend across the table was calm and present, and before I knew it, I was daydreaming once more. Inspired by my surroundings, I gamed up yet another Oscar-worthy performance whereby I would plant my contact information within my fortune cookie and replace it with hers. Her lucky number. That's when I realized I had no fortune of my own. Thus, I approached the cashier, received my small enriched treat, and immediately noticed a coincidentally large segment of fortune protruding from its shell. Interesting. As much as I wanted to deny such an obvious sign, I knew I could not. Daydream became reality. Within moments, my fingers were cold as ice. My heart raced as fast as any NASCAR event I have never seen, and that pit of despair that wells in your gut when you're about to miss a flight sat in mine. Removing the fortune from its cookie while keeping the shell intact was heart surgery on 20 Red Bulls a day after quitting smoking, cold turkey. And writing my number on this outrageously small sliver was compounded by three non-cooperative pens. I had blue ink all over my hands. The entire operation felt like I was disarming a bomb with one minute left on its timer. But I did it. My number sat safe and ready for a date with destiny until I realized the two ladies were leaving. I had come so far only to walk out empty hearted when the universe granted me one final opportunity. The friend parked right next to me. Nerves at maximum, I stopped her and politely asked if she could deliver my fortune cookie to the lady of the hour, her friend. I did so as suavely and kindly as possible, which I'm sure came across as supremely awkward. After that, I booked it out of there. My heart was on fire and my hands, earthquakes. Driving away, I freaked out and repeatedly asked myself, what did I just do? I also laughed the biggest laugh and smiled the widest smile. I overcame my fears and declared to the universe that I was ready to date again. The universe, however, was not. She didn't call back until about an hour later. By then, I was halfway to Nashville along I-65. My heart leapt, but I did not answer. Lucky for me, a voicemail was left behind. It was to be the highlight of my day. How would she sound? Did she think I was crazy? Where did she get that dress? 30 minutes later, I opened the voicemail to find out. I expected the message to sound like a delicate soprano singing. I was wrong. Instead, I was met with that of a stern base. And just when I thought I was standing face-to-face with her boyfriend, I was wrong again. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, it gets worse. It was her dad. My heart was riddled with shrapnel. My attempts to set the record straight were left unanswered. And while my plan was flawed from the start, I had found the strength to follow my heart.
1: You're listening to Stories of Love here on the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 FM HD1. Serendipity plays a role in the love story of Kate Watts. And today, February 13th, is the actual anniversary of their marriage. Happy anniversary to Kate and Greg.
8: I'm not a romantic person. I don't read romance novels, and I don't believe in destiny. But I do believe in serendipity and the story I'm about to tell is a fine example of it. Serendipity can be called a happy accident, the unanticipated conclusion of an unsuspected design. Depending on your viewpoint, you might consider happy accidents, destiny, or pure chance. But whether you believe in destiny, serendipity, or chance, this is the story for you. It begins in 2007 when I took a job at a local fabric store I hit it off immediately with another employee, Elaine, and soon we were inseparable. We became so close that when she briefly began dating a guy named Greg, she asked me to join them at House of Brews one night. As a rule, I'm not a social butterfly. Cocoons are more my style. Still, I agreed to go. I admit, to my shame, that Greg was a third wheel that night. Instead, Elaine and I spent the evening talking to each other. While Greg made no particular impression on me, I did register some details about him. He was a man of few words, he wore a beard and ponytail, and he dressed in black, and he wore a fedora. After that night, I didn't see Greg again as Elaine was soon dating a new guy, and Greg faded away into memory. Around the same time, Elaine introduced me to some of her acquaintances. I stayed in sporadic contact with only one of those acquaintances, Ken, even when Elaine later moved out of state. Fast forward to early 2012. At that time my life had just been turned upside down and the last thing I wanted to do was go out and meet new people. Still, when Ken urged me to join him and some of his friends at Finnegan's Pub for their Wednesday night get-togethers, I agreed. Soon, I became a regular on those Wednesday nights, and after a few months, I noticed another regular. He always sat quietly at the bar, keeping to himself, and usually reading a book. That alone caught my attention. It even overshadowed the less significant details, like his long hair and dark clothing. He liked books. He could have looked like Orlando Bloom, and I wouldn't have noticed. After a few weeks, I decided to introduce myself and ask him out, another uncharacteristic move for me. So I went up to that quiet guy and tapped him on the shoulder. Hi, I began. I've seen you here reading, and anybody who reads books is someone I want to get to know. We exchanged numbers and decided to meet for a cup of coffee. Oh, and his name, he told me, was Greg. Not until the evening we were to meet, did the insignificant details I'd overlooked begin to click. I'd arrived early, and as I waited, my mind drifted. I remembered a guy I'd briefly met years before, a man of few words who wore a beard and a ponytail and who always dressed in black, a guy my friend Elaine had dated. I was pretty sure that someone had also been named Greg. The only missing detail was the fedora. My date arrived a few minutes later, bearded, with a ponytail, and dressed in black, and wearing a fedora. Now I had no doubt, this Greg was the same Greg I'd met five years before. I waited a month to fess up, and when I did tell him we'd met before, and that I was the same friend his date had spent the evening talking to that long-ago night at House of Brews, he couldn't help but laugh. It's like something out of a book we told each other. Must be serendipity, I said. Now, 13 years after we first met, and 8 years after we met again, we're married. Destiny, maybe. Pure chance, could be. I still vote for serendipity. But the circumstances do indeed read like something out of a book. And who were we to fight the perfect plot?
1: This is 89.3 FM HD 1. Up next, John Davis tells us the story of two people in love living in post-World War II times. Will they defeat the odds living on opposite sides of the Iron Curtain? Let's find out.
9: Fables can become true. Legend says that once there was a mad emperor who outlawed marriage. Yes, ancient Rome's fable of St. Valentine is eternal. It tells of two Roman lovers who secretly married despite the cynical law, a law created to force men into the imperial army. Yet, love stories are eternal because fables carry eternal truths through time, even modern times. In fact, some fables become true. In a small German country town in 1943, Renata's sister Melanie was born. Melanie was born with what today we call Down syndrome. Her mother was terrified. If her baby came to the attention of Nazi zealots, Melanie would be taken away and gassed since Nazis considered her unfit to live. So it was that Renata, who deeply loved her baby sister, was told never to talk about her in town. She could only play with Melanie secretly at home. After two more years, the Nazi terror came to an end. Melanie's family could take the toddler to play wherever they wanted. She was loved and is loved to this day. She makes people happy by her eternal joy of life. Renata met and fell in love with Georg at the ancient tree-lined campus of the University in Halle, Germany. He was studying to become a doctor. Indeed, he did. In fact, he became a respected surgeon. As the fortunes of post-war politics hardened, the border between Renata's West and Georg's East Germany turned into an impassable Iron Curtain. Yet Renata loved Georg and chose to return to him in the East. To do so meant to enter the police state of communist East Germany, where government surveillance, arbitrary arrest, religious persecution, and class warfare ruled. She was treated worse than a criminal by government hirelings. First considered a spy, she was then tormented by every act the communist state's now-red Nazis could muster. Yet return she did, for she loved the man who became her husband. Georg was never happier, for he married Renata. Even offered a chance to escape to the West, they would not. Ever the true professional, Georg asked, who will look after my patients? Despite everything, they stayed together and raised a good and kind family. Eventually, the wall came down, and my wife Jane and I met them. They are, to this day, happily married. Yes, the wall finally came down. Now the doctor and Renata visit with the families of his successful and happy children. They are free to travel and do what they like. Indeed, they visit Melanie, who still brings joy to all who know her. Moreover, this is why the Valentine story will always remain with us. Love protected Melanie until the Nazi lies were only a memory. Love prevailed, even when to marry meant to risk life under a police state. In this case, they all lived happily ever after. And after all, isn't that how love stories end?
1: John Davis lives in Athens, Alabama, and his latest book is called Around the Corner, detailing his time as a linguist, liaison, and counterintelligence investigator. You're tuned in to a special episode of the Public Radio Hour called Stories of Love on 89.3 FM HD1. And up next, Monita Sony grew up in India, but loves the essence of the Tennessee Valley, her home for the past 20 years. Monita remembers about a time her father showed just how far he would go to show her his love.
10: This is When You Love Someone. My world was hurtling down a steep cliff, and I was trapped between an impervious rock and a spiny porcupine. Only... It was worse. My gut was in overdrive and my cerebral cortex was going out of orbit. I've always been a late bloomer and although my limbs stretched in height, my brain failed to catch up to speed. So when I got married, my baby face did not know that my perfect life was heading down headfirst into disaster. My milk and almond bite Neuronal pathways were in for a psychedelic roller coaster ride. It was not jolly. My Dudat uncle, a self appointed friend, philosopher, and guide, was correct in his assumptions that my fate out of Mumbai was worse than being a fish out of water in the dry desert. Having fond memories of this ancient city of pink palaces as a child, was radically different from going as a bride into a family of three strangers and their even strange acquaintances a homeopathic doctor, a schizophrenic Kashmiri Pandit, and a saffron robed tantric. I absorbed the quixotic chaos in my home with the eyes of an avid reader of mystery novels, but the time spent at the feet of Agatha Christie and Perry Mason was not enough to prepare me for the harrowing hairpin bend like Jumanji moments in my new life. When monkeys, minor birds, parrots, cockatoos and roaring lions escaped from the nearby zoo, offered no respite, I had no choice but to touch base with the mother-father board. Home help was a few thousand miles away. There was not a single soul who was simpatico near me. There were no cell phones. The only landline was in the living room and was not private. On one such pressing occasion, I made a plan to make a phone call from an outside line. I crept out of the house in mid afternoon when folks were on siesta and went to the office of a relative. Thankfully, our uncle was not there, but his business partner was. I told him a white lie The phone at home is not working. And I have to call my folks in Bombay. He nodded. I took the phone and started dialing my home number. As dad came on the line, I explained to him that I was calling him from so-and-so's office and -and so-and-so was stuck to his chair and not eager to afford me a private conversation. It's bad, I wailed and then rattled off the issue to my dad in code language. To my dismay, my brilliant dad was having a very difficult time to crack my cryptic code. Regardless, I persisted and told him it would be a good idea if he came urgently. Choking over one word, P-A-R, P-A-R, so-and-so kept staring at me. I hung up and ran back, sobbing silently. I was at my wit's end. Hours passed and my mom called the landline, but her message was not conveyed to me. Then at 3 a.m. on a very cold and foggy winter night, a very tired, tall man in a tweed coat and bleak eyes came over the threshold. My mother-in-law called out my name. Your dad is here. I ran out in my nightgown, bare feet. Daddy, I cried out and clutched at the hand-knotted grey woolen sweater on his chest and started bawling. He gently patted me on my back and said, It's good to see that you're okay, my daughter. I looked at his face. He had not shaved and his lips were cracked. There was a worried look around his eyes. Later, I found out that he was flying from Bombay to Delhi on an urgent business matter when he took my call. And that not knowing how to contact me for a better understanding of my duress on the phone, he took a night taxi from Delhi. He travelled all through the dark, bitter cold night to check on me. I felt terrible subjecting him to so much stress on my account. He listened to my whisper details of the decoded message. He grew very solemn and said, I will take care of it. But he also said, daughter, when you love someone, you don't subject them to stress. I forgot my troubles and felt so bad because I realized how much anguish I had caused him. I gave him a comfortable bed and said, dear dad, you rest now. We will talk in the morning. After that night, a new light had dawned on my family as to what kind of pickle I was in. But it took many ponderous and resourceful efforts by all of us to extricate me from there. My dad's words, when you love someone, are instilled in my heartbeat. I can never forget his worried face and also became acutely aware of how many insurmountable struggles of his own he had kept hidden from me. Those gently spoken words from a very tender-hearted man caused me to transform from a crying baby into a koi fish. Because when you love someone, you know.
1: Monita Sony says that sharing stories from her youth in India helps to build a bridge between cultures in her home country and in Alabama. We close our show with a trio of stories pondering the evolution of love and about a holiday gift that would mend wounded hearts. First, we start with two men who walk into a diner, but only one gets the girl. Here's Wayne Holiday.
11: It's an idea. As old as the hills, Mike said, taking a sip of beer from his mug, and a stupid one at that. I thought I was in love, he said, watching a waitress go by. Got married, had kids, got divorced. Call it what you will, it doesn't matter. It gets a man into trouble and lasts a lifetime. The waitress, a pretty young woman wearing an engagement ring, smiled at Mike as she walked past our table. Mike, a handsome fellow in his 30s, had just completed his second divorce. His two ex-wives and three children took a goodly portion of his monthly salary in alimony. He returned the waitress's smile. She's a looker, Mike said, after she had passed. The kind that some guy has fallen in love with, I said. Did you see the ring? Yeah, and boy is he in for a surprise, Mike pronounced, a wry smile on his face. Just wait until the kids come and the boredom sets in and he perceives the prison that he's in. So you don't believe in love, I said. You think it's a hoax. It's nature's way of making fools of us all, Mike said sarcastically. The subject had come up during our meal when I told Mike about seeing this attractive woman on the bus downtown with the most amazing eyes. We had made eye contact at Hell for several seconds longer than usual, and I stayed on the bus past my stop just so I could look at her. You're a fool, Jim, Mike said. You're young and inexperienced and a good candidate for trouble. Take my advice, old chap. Date him, but don't marry him. Let somebody else enjoy the misery. I laughed, although there was something in Mike's voice that gave me pause. I had been in love a couple of times, or I thought I had, but they had both come to an end because of absences. I had even given one an engagement ring, and my mom had been delighted because she wanted a grandchild. But the woman with the eyes. I wanted to ask Mike if he believed in love at first sight, but I was sure he'd only laugh. I had never contemplated the idea before except as a literary trick. How could one look at another human being, a complete stranger, and experience not only physical attraction, but the emotion that we call love? And what is love, really? Is it really, real, or only a fantasy? Is it more than physical attraction, or just that, nature's way of continuing the species? Well, I've had enough discussion on the philosophy of love, I told Mike as I got up from the table The food was good, the waitress pretty, and Mike was, as always, a stimulating conversationalist. He was still looking at the waitress. Love is a fraud, Mike said. It's a figment of your imagination. Stay clear, my boy, he advised. We paid our checks, and the pretty waitress was at the cash register. I hope you fellows enjoyed your meals, she said with a bright smile. We both returned her smile, and Mike's became a leer. Down, boy, I said quietly. It was delicious, ma'am, I told her, and pulled Mike towards the door. That evening, when I got on the bus, she was there again, the same eyes, the same smile. She looked at me, and I was smitten. Something about her was different from all the other females I could remember. I let go of my strap and walked towards her as if compelled to do so by some magical force. She watched as I approached, a demure smile on her lips and that look in her eyes. I grabbed a strap next to where she was standing. Hello, I said. It sounded like a frog's croak, but she smiled. That was 20 years ago, 20 wonderful years, and Mike was wrong. I married the woman with the amazing eyes, and they're still amazing. Our daughter has the same eyes, beautiful eyes, that some guy is going to fall in love with. And Mike got married again. Poor guy couldn't follow his own advice. This time his marriage has, so far, lasted for 15 years. I think maybe he's actually, finally, fallen in love.
12: There is a story of evolution about the fight-or-flight response that we all share. It's an unconscious response that was invaluable when our ancient ancestors encountered a saber-toothed tiger that wanted them for lunch. Our reaction to the response has been considered a key to the survival of our species. But the response does not come from the brain. Stress causes chemical reactions in our nervous system that tells our brain something is wrong. We feel it first, then think for a second and react. This has been a part of us since the threat of a saber-toothed tiger. Threats now come from driving in traffic, school, work, bills that are due, and sometimes our in-laws. We still experience the fight or flight response, even in the modern age. What about love? Love at first sight is real. I certainly don't experience love simply because I think about it. Is it something as ancient as the fight-or-flight response? What did love offer us in the days of saber-toothed tigers? Our primitive ancestors fell in love, too. Love means we're accepted, even if we're not always understood. We evolved in spite of love helping us survive. It's impossible for me to ignore a smile, a gentle touch, or a kind word. I know I feel it and sometimes get so consumed with that feeling that I go crazy. Those experiences remind me instantly of love, and that makes my system send good feelings to my brain that helps my heart learn to be more compassionate, forgiving, and most of all, kind. When I was born, like most people, I wasn't even aware of my feelings let alone thoughts. But somehow, love became really important. It meant my mom was with me, making sure I was warm and safe. It meant when I was sleepy, I just drifted off to sleep without a care in the world. The chemical signals sent to my little baby brain taught me what love feels like. Those pathways established when I was a child have grown into superhighways as an adult. When someone says hello... The feeling of that opens my heart. I get the same thing by saying thank you to someone for their kindness. It goes both ways. The idea that this little stuff offers so much good amazes me. Of course, it takes a lot of energy to stay in the moment to recognize when that happens. That part is hard. Knowing when someone is sharing love can be very tricky, even when I am aware. I have to admit, I'm no expert on that. The part that's easy for me is giving love. It's the receiving that can be difficult. Fred Rogers once said that most people are challenged more by receiving love than anything else. Pretty sure he was talking about me. Familiar things we fondly remember give us a feeling of love. Television and radio shows, movies, music, books, and food do that to us. Those closest to us do that whether we want it or not. Our memories of experiences with them help grow a connection between our thoughts and feelings. Brand new connections for love are sometimes left to circumstance. Remember when you first met the love of your life? The connection had to fit the superhighway you had already built. Sometimes the one you thought was the love of your life turned out not to be. That's because they were not able to travel the superhighway you built from your own life, from feelings sent to your brain and then to your heart, which makes the final decision. How do we build new superhighways for love? I think they still start out as pathways, but as an adult, using those paths through the unknown takes courage, bravery, constant awareness, and a deliberate desire to make the world a better place for everyone. Each little new thing grows that path. Before we know it, there is a new way for us to feel love that didn't exist before, and we evolve as individuals. The new superhighways we create can and will lead us to evolve. Each day brings a new opportunity for each of us to see the little things that grow our paths for loving those around us and helping their love to grow.
1: Sundial writer Chris Ferguson on our Stories of Love episode here on the Public Radio Hour. We close the show with this true story about shopping for the holidays by Mariah Beachboard.
13: Everyone has a story. When given a chance to hear that story and be a positive part of it in some small way, Well, that's the uplifting holiday joy we talk about, no matter your religion or even the time of year. We long for the joy, and some assume it only appears in December. The truth is, loving another soul begets that joy. While working at a fashion jewelry store, I had the fortune to see it happen over and over again. One particular afternoon, a grizzled man in a motorized scooter nudged his way into my store. I rushed up to him and asked how I could help him. He wanted to give a charm bracelet to his wife for Christmas. I parted the sea of customers for him as we made our way to that area of the store. He needed seven birthstones on the bracelet with a cross. We couldn't do the cross, but I asked for more details. The birthstones would represent their children and the cross for the child who had passed. He cleared his throat and shifted in his chair as tears came to his eyes. His vulnerability made me uncomfortable, but I pressed on. Uh, Did your child have a name? He said, yes, yes, he has a name. He died when he was a teenager. His name was Chris. What do you say when a man is near tears sharing his deepest grief in a store crammed with needy holiday customers? Customers shouting at you from across the store and pointing at pieces they want to try on. Customers who have husbands with rolling eyes and impatient feet. Customers who are so stressed out, they bark commands and demand you bend company policies just for them. How do you honor a man's grief in the midst of that chaos? I breathed. Okay, uh, well, we don't have a cross charm, but what about an initial? The letter C to honor his name, I suggested. He inhaled, and when he couldn't find his voice, he nodded. As I finished up the piece, he told me how he planned to present the gift on her birthday, Christmas Eve, when their children visit them. I smiled and brought the piece off the counter and showed it to him. He sighed and after a moment said, Yes, that's it. I think it helped telling you our story. I nodded. This time I was the one who couldn't speak. Now, it turns out before he had a motorized scooter, he did all his Christmas shopping in a wheelchair pushed by his wife. This was the first Christmas he could surprise her with a gift from a store she didn't know he visited. But she was his ride home. He bashfully asked, Do you have a bag or something that doesn't have your logo on it so I can hide it from her? I searched the whole store and the back rooms. The only bag without our logo was a plastic bag in which an associate brought her lunch. I could not give him a wrinkled, holy grocery bag. So I ripped the earrings out of a little gift box we had on display and handed it to him. He tested the inner pocket of his plaid padded jacket, and it fit perfectly. After I finished up the transaction and put a bow on the little box, he stowed this one-of-a-kind personalized present for his wife of 30-some years. Then I guided him out of the store. I smiled for the rest of my shift, imagining his seven children arriving at his house on Christmas Eve and watching his wife open the gift in their presence, and all of them sharing in the joys and sorrows of their loving story. I loved that man for inviting me to be a small part of it.
1: Much love and many thanks to our Sundial Writers' Corner wordsmiths, Chris Ferguson, Mariah Beachboard, Wayne Holiday, Lonita Sony, Aparna Bhusanen, Shri Bhusanen, Rose Battle, Kate Watts, John Davis, Andrew Gonzalez, Joyce Billingsley, and Melissa Ford Thornton. This weekend, take a deep dive into our archive of episodes of the Public Radio Hour on our website, wlrh.org. And happy listening. Love one another and be kind. Good night, everybody.
6: I'm Judy Cameron. I'm from Huntsville, Alabama. I normally listen to WLRH just whenever I'm near a radio. I especially enjoy the locally produced programs. I think we are unique in that way, and that's why I support WLRH. Huntsville just wouldn't be the same without WLRH. I support
8: WLRH and the Sundial Writer's Corner, and I hope you will, too.